0: Let's uh, bow our heads for prayer uh, before we open the family book together. Lord our God, you are not simply a uh, concept. You are not a specimen that we study from a distance. You are not a relic from the past. You are the living God, and you are here right now with us. And you are the God with whom we have relationship, us to you and you to us. You are God with us. And Father, I pray now as we open your word and look at an aspect of our relationship with you, that you would come strong and come in power, come in encouragement. Uh, Lord, come in perhaps a course correction for some, Help us today, we pray in Jesus' name, and we sit under the authority of you and your word in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Our family lives across the street from the elementary school that you see there on screen. And each day, each weekday, when it's time for the young students to come outside for recess, Older folks, do you remember recess? <laughs> when it's time to come up for recess, the students don't simply walk out of the building, all sort of composed and somber. Rather, they burst out of that building like a noisy flood, sprinting into the field and shouting and skipping. Well, the tone of our preaching passage today is like young kids being let out for recess. There is a happy energy. There is a joy, a great enthusiasm about this passage. Why? Well, because it's found right after something utterly magnificent has just happened for God's people. God has just delivered his people safely through the Red Sea using that same sea to drown the Egyptian army. And so in Exodus 15, God's people burst out like kids at recess in triumphant joy and in energetic praise. Now, the 14th chapter of Exodus gives us the prose account, the prose account of the deliverance at the Red Sea, while the 15th chapter of Exodus, where we will be today, gives the poetic account. Or we might put it like this, as Victor Hamilton has put it, that while Exodus 14 narrates the story of the Red Sea deliverance, Exodus 15 celebrates it. Are you ready for a celebration as we kick off a new year? So Exodus 15 is God's people celebrating, singing in faith to their mighty God who has just delivered them so miraculously through the Red Sea. Now, when Charles Spurgeon preached from Exodus 15, almost 140 years ago now, he noticed that in Exodus 15, 14, verse 14, 14:14, 14, 14, which is part of the prose account of the story, Moses had said to the people there, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So that encouragement to be silent happened just prior to the actual miracle of the waters dividing. But as Spurgeon pointed out, now in Exodus 15, with the miracle now completed, with God's victory being won, the people don't have to remain silent any longer. And so they very appropriately burst out in this tremendous praise to God. Now notice how Exodus 15 starts, it starts at 15.1. Then, notice, then Moses and the people of Israel sang. Then they sang right after the victory at the sea was won. Then they sang. They sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It's a great way to start the service this morning (laughs) with that song. So get the picture here, friends. Here are the weak people of Israel, the Hebrew people, the same people who had cried out, hadn't they? They had cried out in bondage under Egypt. These are the people who had been utterly powerless to free themselves from that very cruel situation. And here they are now, just picture this, they're standing on the safe side of the Red Sea. They look around and they see, over here are some Egyptian chariots with their wheels hopelessly half sunk into the sand. And over there are some dead horses. The fearsome might of Egyptian, of the Egyptian army, the the terrible force of this superpower of the day, and they were a superpower now vanquished, routed, defeated. And so the people sing and their song, we need to notice, is full of God. They address their song to him when they say, I will sing to the Lord, and they sing about him in their song, he has triumphed gloriously. The song is full of God. It is to God, and it is about God. It's about what God has done. It's about what God will do. This is a God-centered, praise song. In fact, it's interesting to note this, Moses is nowhere mentioned in this song, anywhere, even though he had been the human instrument in this great deliverance. But he's not mentioned in this song. The focus of the song is squarely on the Lord. Now it is health for our souls to sing as many God-centered songs God saturated songs as we can, or or to use the terminology of John Piper, God besotted songs to sing as many of those as we can and minimize worship songs that focus too much on me, myself and I. The song that the Israelites sing here is marked, we need to see, by joyous enthusiasm for God which isn't to say it isn't to say that there should be no personal aspect to our worship singing far from it in fact watch where our song goes next in verse 2 and notice how personal how personal the praise of God becomes verse 2 the Lord is what my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Now, did you notice all the uses of my and I in this verse? I count seven uses, so you don't have to count them. This is very personal, this praise. It's very personal. Let's just think about the first few lines of this verse together. So we have the weak Hebrew people who had been forced to make bricks without straw under Pharaoh, and they now declare the Lord, Yahweh, is my strength. I have no real strength of my own, Yahweh is my strength. Who but Yahweh can divide a body of water so that we can pass safely through it while the same water drowns our enemies? You want to talk about strength? It's found in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Isaiah 45 verse 24 goes so far to say that strength is only in the Lord. Strength is real strength, is only in the Lord. It's Yahweh, friends, the living God, who is strong, amen? I mean, think about this just for a second with me, think about this, every great human military leader in the history of the world, whether that person was a general, five-star general, three-star general, or a commander of some kind, every one of those people has been dependent on troops to carry out their military strategy. Yes? In World War I, Canadian General Arthur Curry was dependent on lance corporals like my grandfather and my granduncle and thousands of other soldiers to carry out his battlefield plans. But when God decides to go to war in defense of his precious people, when God determines that he must fight against the evil that is threatening his people, he is dependent on absolutely no one. Why? because power and strength are intrinsic to God. As Matthew Barrett has put it recently, he says, God is all powerful in and of himself. He is all powerful in and of himself. Now, isn't it fabulous news, followers of Jesus, that the Lord is our strength? especially as we look in recent days at the many threats in this province and in this nation to religious liberty, the challenges to freedom of conscience, the ways in which Satan is entwined in so many world systems. Isn't it great news that the Lord is our strength? Isn't it a magnificent truth that the Lord is our strength when we are up against adversity. When we are utterly inadequate by ourselves, as the Israelites were utterly helpless when their backs were to the Red Sea and the most fearsome army on Earth was approaching. The Lord is our strength, yes? He has assured us, has he not, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his blood-bought, ransomed church. The Lord is my strength and my song. Notice God is the very song itself that we sing. He is our song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God. And I will praise him. Now, just indulge me here. I imagine here the astonished, and they are astonished, the astonished Israelites gazing in wonder now at the water that they had just passed safely through, that had drowned the pursuing Egyptians. And they glance also over at the wrecked chariots over here and the dead horses over here and the washed up dead soldiers. And they marvel at the realization suddenly that now their long night of suffering in Egypt has ended and their fear is gone and all they can sing is god's salvation this is my god they say this god whose handiwork is right here on this beach with these busted up chariots This sea that obeyed him, this, this is my God. You can have any other God that you want to have, but as for me, this is my God. And I pray that God in 2023 will take our breath away, that he will astonish us like he did for the people here at the Red Sea, That, that we would be confident going out into this world with voices of praise, this God, this God of the Bible, this is my God. Well, let's go to verse three where they continue. I hope you are ready for a celebration this morning. Yahweh the Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Now this is a very fascinating verse because this is the first time in the Bible where God is identified in military terms as a man of war. After this miracle at the sea, after all of those successive divinely orchestrated plagues in Egypt, the Hebrew people in their praise song recognize Yahweh To be the God who fights for his people, who fights for his people, who battles against evil that threatens his purposes and threatens his people. The Lord, my friends, is a warrior. He is a warrior. But what we notice is that there is no mention anywhere, is there, there's no mention that this man of war, this Yahweh utilized an aircraft carrier or drones or a tank or missiles of any kind or any sort of carefully organized alliance of human armies. Didn't use that to carry out his warfare. Watch this. Watch where this song goes. Verse four. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he that is Yahweh cast into what? The sea. sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Notice that there are two references in this verse to the sea. Notice how Yahweh, God of Israel, used the sea, listen, used the sea as his instrument of warfare. God cast the Egyptian army into the sea. God sunk Pharaoh's JTF2, Green Beret, special operations, elite troops in the Red Sea. So the point is that the armory of Almighty God against the best of the best that the superpower Egypt had to offer was the sea. The weapon that God controlled and that he used here to win his victory was millions of liters of water. Pharaoh and his army were hopefully outmatched. Amen. Hopelessly. Did I say hopefully? Hopelessly outmatched. They weren't hopeful at all by the time this water crashed in on them, They're hopelessly outmatched by the Lord God omnipotent. As Charles Spurgeon put it so memorably, he put a lot of things memorably, but he said this, what is Pharaoh's strength when matched against the Lord's might? And then he answered, a paper pellet thrown against a wall of brass. A paper pellet thrown against a wall of brass indeed. Verse five, the floods covered them. There's the water again. They went down into the depths, the water again, like a stone. It's pretty fast sinking when a stone sinks. So the mighty Egyptian crack troops wearing all of their precision armor with all their shields and their bows and their spears and their chariots sinking down like a stone in Yahweh's obedient water. Now notice this, friends, notice how verses four and five tell the story of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, right? What happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians? What happened to them? And now in verse six, the song turns the focus away from the Egyptians and it puts it squarely on God. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Now, I don't know what your frame of mind or your mood was when you came into the sanctuary this morning, but maybe you're a person listening today who needs to take your focus off whatever it is that is threatening you and turn the gaze of your soul Firmly back upon God. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Desmond Alexander translates the word glorious there in the second line as superior. It's a viable rendering, God, your right hand is superior in power. Superior to what? Well, superior to anything and everything that might threaten his kids and his purposes. And notice here also that God's right hand is a hand that delivers a decisive TKO, knockout punch, to the enemy that is threatening his people. God's right hand doesn't play. His right hand does what to the enemy? It doesn't just push the enemy, it shatters the enemy. Verse 7 In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. What a verse! I was joking with a friend this week and saying, hey, I should make some oven mitts that have this verse on them. Douglas Stewart is a commentator on Exodus who makes the point here that and I think he's right, many, many of us, many people would prefer a sort of uh, sentimental view of God where we conceive God as always being tolerant always being soft hearted, sort of winking at the evil in the world. But Stuart says this quote, the just God revealed in the Bible will not tolerate evil. Though he is extremely patient in waiting for repentance, as he was for at least 80 years with the Egyptians and plans for evils, God plans for evils, total elimination. And then he says this, people who insist on being part of the process of evil will be eliminated as well. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Verse eight, which is still in address to God and describing what he did at the Red Sea. At the blast of your nostrils, what happened? The waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps did what? Congealed. In the heart of the sea. Now, that word congealed is a very interesting word. What's being described here, friends, is the waters of the Red Sea acting, in essence, like jello or like whipped cream. Imagine that the waters congealing or curdling into a sort of soft, solid form so that the Israelites could pass through safely to the other side. Only God could make this happen, amen? Amen. Only God could work such a wonder. Only God could work around the laws of physics that he created and perform this miracle. People of God, I hope this morning you're singing along with this passage in praise to God. We have a great God. Now, verse 9 is what I'm calling an SMH verse. Shake my head. Keep in ri- mind as we read this verse that God is on the scene here as a warrior, okay? He's warring on behalf of his people. He's working wonders. He's working his fierce power so that his purposes will be realized. But here comes Pharaoh and his army. And notice what they say. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. SMH. Did Egypt realize who the opponent was that they were facing here at the sea? (laughs) Apparently not. What is verse nine? Well, verse nine is a sort of staccato recycle uh, uh, sorry, recital, not recycle. Boy, I needed my coffee this morning. Staccato recital. Of the pride. And the hubris. And the grave miscalculation. Of Egypt. Now, just imagine this for a moment, friends. Imagine two elite soldiers in a chariot, OK? And they're going full speed toward the Israelites. The two horses that are pulling the chariot are galloping. They're huffing and puffing as horses do as they're hurtling forward. The chariot is rattling along, along the seabed and the horses are out of breath, but the guys in the chariot aren't out of breath. They're driving the horses and as they drive the the horses, one or the other of them are spewing out these rather bloodthirsty lines. In verse nine, in rapid succession, I will pursue. Notice the staccato-ness of this. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Now, perhaps the funniest part of this little speech is that line I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Well, first of all, your sword isn't gonna be very effective against the millions of gallons of water that are about to collapse on you. And second, your frail little human hand against the almighty right hand of God that we just heard about in verse six, your hand It's kind of like a spider mite going up against and battling a herd of elephants. That's kind of the the odds you're facing here. My friends, here in verse nine, we have an example of an enemy of God attaching tremendous significance to itself, amen? An enemy of God attaching tremendous proud significance to itself. We have an instance here of God's enemy lifting itself up in misplaced pride and great self-significance and self-confidence. Well, let's contrast verse nine with, with all its pride, the proud human plans and designs. Contrast that with the reality that hits so hard in verse 10. Okay. Notice again all the ness of here, the big plans. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, <laughs> the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. What's happened to all those plans and designs and confidences in verse 9? They came to nothing. Because God just simply blew his wind and worked his water and it was all over. Just like that. Those proud folk who were bent on destroying the people of God sank like lead in the sea when God decided he would sink them. My friends, what sort of God are we dealing with here? Who is this? With this sort of power. Verse 11. Who is like you? O oh, Yahweh, O oh Lord, among the gods, who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome, in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Oh, friends, meditate with me here on this breathless note of sheer astonishment and praise. No one comes remotely close to comparing with our God. Amen. Doug Stewart puts it so well, I think, when he says this. I'm going to read another quote from Stewart. He says that God is, quote, superior to all real and false superhuman beings, including angels, heavenly and fallen, and even to what the pagans think their non-existent gods are. Once more, God is superior to all real and false superhuman beings, including angels heavenly and angels fallen, and even to what the pagans think their non-existent gods are. Who compares to our God? And so the next time you pray the next time you approach God with your difficulties, I want you to think on this. You are praying to the one in that moment in 2023, you are praying to the one who parted the Red Sea. Yes? yes. You are praying to the one who made those waters firm up like jello. No one like him. You are praying to the one who spoke the world into existence. You wouldn't be sitting on pews right now unless God spoke trees into existence. No one like him. You are praying to the one who spoke the world into existence and who measured the waters, including the Red Sea, including the Atlantic Ocean and the St. Lawrence Seaway, who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and weighed the mountains and the hills in his balances. No one like him. And so why should we be fearful, terrified and distraught church when our living God is so exceedingly great and incomparable and he is with us, he is with us. Our preaching passage ends with verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And here the idea of the earth swallowing the Egyptian army seems to be a reference to Sheol, to the underworld. So that the idea here is that it wasn't just that the Egyptian army failed to capture, failed to put their hands on the Israelites at the sea. It was also that the Egyptians died in the process and went, in Old Testament terms at least, to the underworld. The earth swallowed them. All right, so now, having thought through that passage, I want to make a various observation, and the very obvious observation is that you and I will never likely be in the position of having the Egyptian army bear down on us. Would you agree? In other words, Egypt is not our enemy. But there are other enemies, far greater enemies, that we face that we are helpless to overcome on our own. And those enemies are the ugly triad of sin, death, and the devil. And in our remaining moments this morning, I want us to concentrate especially on the first in that triad, our great enemy called sin. God in true red sea fashion has come to our rescue hasn't he in his son jesus christ to war against that enemy called sin and to gain victory over it for us come with me to the prophet micah chapter 7. now micah is a prophet who lived many centuries after the red sea incident but micah alludes explicitly to the Red Sea incident in Micah chapter seven. Here Micah is prophesying to the exiled community. And he says in verse 15, notice what he says, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So right away Micah in his day, He's alluding back to the Exodus out of Egypt, back to the time when God had worked the plagues and had worked the Red Sea. And he's saying there that there will be a new wonder, a new wonder worked by God that will take place at some moment in the future to Micah that will be like the Red Sea deliverance. In verses 16 and 17, Micah goes on to prophesy the defeat of the nations who oppose God's people. A defeat that will be wrought by God, not unlike the way he did in the days of Pharaoh in Egypt. And then notice in verse 18, we get a verse just like Exodus 15, 11 in the Song of the Sea that we looked at already, where the freshly delivered people had said in Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Micah indicates that the victory that God will work in the future to him will be so amazing that the only proper response will again be, who is a God like you? You are incomparable. There is no one like you. But what I want you to note carefully, friends, is that it's not victory over Pharaoh, Pharaoh's hosts that Micah has in mind, but rather it's God's victory over human sinfulness that causes this worshipful, who is a God like you? He says, who is a God like you? And then notice, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in chesed, in steadfast love. And then verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread, notice, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. To tread underfoot like this is to subdue in military-like fashion. And the thing here that God will war against and tread upon and subdue is human iniquities, human sin. The divine warrior will war against and he will vanquish Human sin. And just as God had warred against Pharaoh and his army at the sea and had cast that enemy into the sea and drowned them, so Micah says at the end of verse 19, You, God, will cast, not Pharaoh, cast all our sins where? Into the depths of of the sea, that's Exodus language. Now it's our sins that God is going to cause to sink like lead into the waters. Micah says here, there will be a new Exodus. There will be a new Red Sea moment where the mighty enslaving enemy, the mighty enslaving enemy that is pursuing God's weak people, the enemy called sin, will be tread upon by the divine warrior and will be cast into the sea. Now, if Micah's exilic audience, as they're listening to Micah, if they thought that Assyria or Babylon were their real enemy, Micah sets them straight. And he says, no, in fact, your deeper, more problematic enemy is your own sin against God which is the thing that caused your exile. Sin is an enemy, as Leslie DiFrancesco has it, that is, quote, a severe, even violent threat to human well-being with the potential to dominate, to oppress, and to enslave its victim. And that enemy called sin, that is far too powerful, friends. It's far too powerful for you and I to battle under our own steam. Amen. It's far too powerful. That enemy is the enemy that God comes and wars against. In the days of the Red Sea, God used water to drown the enemy. In days to come, says Micah, God will use forgiveness to drown the enemy and liberate his people. And so what happens? Hundreds of years after Micah's time now, so we're going even further in the future, Jesus is standing on a mountain and his clothing has taken on a dazzling sort of brightness. Moses and Elijah appear. And the three of them, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah begin to have a conversation together. What did they talk about? Luke 9 31 says that they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And significantly, the Greek word that is translated in the ESV, at least as departure is the word exodon, exodus. So the verse can legitimately be translated this way. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What happened at Jerusalem? Well, it was at Jerusalem where the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ happened. Moses, who had been there at the first Exodus, Moses had been there at the Red Sea, singing the song of Exodus 15 on that seashore. Moses was there now with Jesus, discussing the new Exodus, the far greater Exodus that Jesus would lead The far greater exodus that Jesus would perform for his people by his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. The exodus of Jesus was the new exodus that Micah had prophesied. Micah's treading of human iniquity underfoot by the divine warrior would happen in the exodus that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Micah's casting of our great enemy, our sin into the depths of the sea would be accomplished in the exodus that Jesus would now undertake, not to mention the defeat of those other adversaries. Satan himself and what scripture calls our last enemy, death itself. Praise God. Who is like him, friends? Who is like him among the gods in Jesus? The right hand of God has warred against the great enemies of his people and has knocked out those enemies with a fatal blow. Are you with me this morning? And so the call goes out to you this morning, my friend, to trust Jesus Christ as your rescue, to trust him as your savior, who substituted himself for you on the cross, there to bear the wrath of God for your sin and to declare your your pardon. The call goes out to you to follow him as Lord in the power of the Spirit who creates you anew. The call goes out to you, friend, to join his choir. Are you singing this morning? to join his choir and sing unendingly with believers the world over. Sing what? As Revelation calls it, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb of God whose exodus has secured our freedom. And so as believers, and then I'm done, let's go out of this place today, I hope, like kids at recess. Yes after a long sermon (laughs) burst out of here like kids at recess into the world full of praise for his deliverance that he has won for us, singing his praises into a world that is quite frankly falling apart. Our lips and our hearts full of adoration to God and being of good courage in all we do because the divine warrior is with us. May his great name be magnified in our lives in 2023. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are not a God who is aloof or removed from the cry of your people. We thank you for your compassion, for your mercy, your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your might, your power, your determination to be a warrior on behalf of your people to defeat evil. And Lord, you're going to do it one day in finality. And we praise you that your promises are true. By your spirit, encourage our hearts by your word as we go out today in Jesus' name. Amen.